0: All right, how you doing everybody and welcome to another episode of the John Riley project how you doing everybody nice to be with you it's Friday happy Friday to you all this is episode number 326 of the John Riley project man we got a lot in store for you today you know we cover a lot of our local headlines here in San Diego County I like to cover some of the news items offer some thoughts and commentary and of course you are welcome to participate if you would like to get involved in our San Diego community forum, or if you have thoughts, comments, questions, as we go through this podcast, just leave your comments on the live stream, go into the live chat on Facebook or YouTube, and I'll get you involved. Um, Today, we're going to talk about the the surging gasoline prices in San Diego. We're going to talk also about the surging water prices in San Diego. Um, Some really interesting story about um, a guy, a sunglasses innovator here in San Diego that's hooked up with Coach Prime in Colorado. I want to talk about that business entrepreneur story. An interesting op-ed in our local Poway newspaper by Harry Levine talking about politics harming us. Um, another interesting thing coming out from the Teamsters and a bill in Sacramento that's going to require for self-driving trucks to actually have a human in the truck, which kind of defeats the purpose, but we'll talk about that. Uh, Chicago's considering government-run grocery stores. Iowa is mandating the Pledge of Allegiance. Then we've got the San Diego Community Forum, where I'll take your thoughts and comments. We got a bunch of topics there, including sports radio at San, in San Diego on the Mighty 690, uh, the Seawolf Captain Charles McVeigh. We'll talk about him, Point Loma gay marriage, North Park micro units, Poway development, San Diego vacancy tax, the backfire of the ban on California tobacco and we can go on from there. But uh, thanks again for joining us um, on another episode. And uh, I've been kind of on the injured list here. I've had COVID and it's prevented me from doing my podcast last week. And I was trying to get back on the horse Wednesday of this week, but it wasn't in the cards. I think I'm finally near the end of the tunnel here, uh, but I'm very happy to be back. So I really enjoy doing this and it's a it's a kind of a passion project. So um, let's let's kick this thing off and let's talk about the gas prices in San Diego. And maybe you've seen some of this you know, going on around town, but the prices for gasoline are now over $6 a gallon. And this is nuts. And people are really freaking out about all this. And I can imagine so. I mean, if you've got a a 20 gallon tank in your car and you fill it up, that's $120 at the gas pump, which is just a ton of money. And people are really struggling with this. Uh, so really interesting article here in the union tribune that came out that kind of talks about it, breaks it all down. And as of Wednesday last week, um, we were at $5, 5 5.99 per gallon as an average. But when you drive around, you look at those prices on the placards by gas stations, it's over $6. Um, And, you know, some of these folks, you hear a lot of different angles about this. On one level, obviously, it's hurting individuals, but it's also hurting businesses. Uh, Businesses, you know, that rely on transportation. This is adding to their cost. And its cost, that gets ended up getting passed on down to consumers. So even if you are driving an EV, I mean, this is definitely still affecting you. And you might be wondering, okay, why is the gas price going up? Is this because of some evil... Oil company CEOs twirling their mustache and smoke, uh, cigar smoke filled back rooms doing this. Well, sort of. That's part of it. I mean, obviously, you know, gas prices are primarily dictated based on a world market. And there's, you know, OPEC, you know, in the Middle East and Russia have been, you know, restricting their development of oil, their production of oil to manipulate market prices. But at the same time, you know, President Biden and the Democrats on one hand are talking about how they're against climate change, but on the other hand, they like to boast how oil production in America is at an all time high, you know, to kind of make up for the deficiencies from OPEC and Russia. So. That's part of it. I mean, it's the oil producers kind of manipulating the market. But then you've got the refinery issue in, in California with, um, you know, the, the, you always hear this, you know, the refineries need maintenance and and that sort of thing. And, and you know, it, it, it's going to, the prices are going to ease in a little bit, especially when we come off that summer blend, I think in around October, the prices are going to drop a bit. But, you know, people are still reacting to this. And of course, they want to blame the president. They want to blame Biden. They want to blame Trump if they can. And the president of the United States definitely has an impact on this. I mean, Biden is certainly not blameless um, and neither are other presidents because the policies that come out of um, Washington, D.C. are what really drive a lot of this. But in my opinion, like one of those policies is the fact that, you know, the Democrats, the progressives are trying to cut back on fossil fuels. You know, they want to reduce fossil fuels, reduce carbon footprint. They want to see us go to a a net zero. I think is it by the year 2050, they're talking about phasing out, or there is a plan to phase out gas powered cars, you know, from being sold on new auto dealer lots as early as 2035. So there's a real clampdown that's going on, Along, you know, automobile companies, oil companies, that are basically saying your future doesn't look good. Your future is bleak, and so what do these companies do? They're reacting. They're not trying to increase production. You know, overall, they can see the writing on the wall, and they also know that it's not going to be worth it to invest more you know they've approved more drilling permits but they're not all being taken advantage of because if you were an oil company would you want to be investing millions of dollars into a into further oil extraction when you know that the demand for this is going to continue to you know be pressured by government policy so in some ways they're acting in their best interest these oil companies to try to keep prices high but There are no incentives for them to drop prices lower, to increase R&D, to do more development. And then this whole thing with refineries, yeah, I mean, some refineries, they go on a uh, a maintenance break, but how many new refineries are we creating in America? I mean, very few. I mean, and, you know, we can produce all the oil in the world you want, but if you're not refining it and converting it into gasoline, then what's the point? And so, again... Why are there not more uh, refineries? And it's usually because of the regulatory state that makes that so difficult, so burdensome to clear all the government hurdles that you end up not with really any significant development of new refineries. So the system is a disaster. There's no doubt about it. Um, Now- Uh, you know, even, even diesel is like $6.36 a gallon. And the U.S. Department of Labor has blamed high gasoline prices for accounting for more than half of the jump in inflation in August. And I believe that, um, you know, because again, government policies are what really is driving inflation. I mean, let's, let's not kid ourselves here. They've, you know, they, first of all, they flooded the market with all this six trillion in new cash, essentially devaluing the dollar. Then, you know, a few years ago during the COVID, you know, disaster, they were restricting supply, restricting production. And when you've got more demand, more money, but less available product, less production, that drives up prices. And inflation as a result is driving up gas prices and other government policies are driving up gas prices. And yeah, that matriculates all the way through the economy and causes higher prices for us. But- you know, I, again, you know, some people say, oh, it's Biden, it's this and that. And, you know, it's not like there's a knob in the Oval Office. So they can change gas prices. But there's no doubt that the rhetoric and the policies that come out of government leaders, not just in D.C., But in the state of California and even in many of our local cities, I mean, even Gavin Newsom was in front of the United Nations blaming the oil companies for deception and fraud and and denial of, you know, the the negative effects of of carbon and fossil fuels. And, you know, I mean, that's a politically popular stance to take. But again, if you're if you're an oil company, if you're a, a company that wants to get into the refining business, et cetera those are not positive signals they're going to make you want to invest in the market and really you know try to have a robust competitive marketplace So these policies work against them. Now, what can you do? You know, a lot of times we feel powerless. You know, there's we can vote for someone, but that doesn't really change much. You can vote for um, a different president. That might make some effect. I mean, prices were really low for gas when Trump was president, but that's because there was a lockdown and no one was driving or very few were driving and the freeways are wide open and there was a lot less pollution because less people were driving. And there was very little demand for gas during the COVID shutdowns. That's why prices were so darn low, but now, yeah, because the economy is rolled back, uh, more people are going into the office for work, and then at the same time, you know, there's there's these negative headwinds that are affecting the way these companies set prices. But there is one thing you can do; it's one thing that I've done opt out. You know, you don't need to drive a gas car. I mean, there are a lot of other options. Um, you know, we have, a, we've, I've been driving an electric vehicle now for some form of an electric vehicle for at least 11 years. And I love them. I mean, I love the technology. I love all the financial incentives. I mean, you know, you can get all these tax rebates and there's free charging and discounts. You know, if you charge your car at night, um, there's a lot of financial incentives to having an EV, but we have two EVs and solar panels on our roof, and that's how we get around, and it works great, you know, and you hear a lot of negativity about electric vehicles. Oh, they can't go long distance. Oh, they take forever to charge, but you know what? We we generate so much power from our solar panels all throughout the day here in sunny South, Southern California that we can actually charge our cars at night, and tap off the grid when the prices are super cheap and then during the day we're we're sending juice back into the grid from all the surplus from our solar panels and quite often in many months our gas and electric bill from San Diego Gas and Electric is zero you know the at least this the electric portion of it we're still paying for the gas and there's still some of those delivery fees for the electricity but the consumption is essentially zero many months because We net produce more than we use. So that's a way out of this. Um, And I I know I I feel the pain. I remember, gosh, probably 20 years ago in the early 2000s, I remember gas prices then were like five bucks a gallon and we were all freaking out. And I was driving a big Chevy Silverado with a 25-gallon tank. And if I wanted to fill up that tank, it would cost me $125 if I went from dead zero to to a full tank. And that was 20 years ago. I mean, you know, that was a lot more money then than it is now. Um, And I remember I used to go to the pumps and you get to the pump and like a lot of them would shut you down at like 75 bucks or a hundred bucks to try to prevent fraud. But people are really gripping about this. Um, You know, the, the gas prices are up. But I think the question we should be asking these leaders are, well, on one, they're sending a mixed message. On one hand, you're saying that, it's not right that these gas prices are, are, are rising, but at the same time, they're basically putting forward policies and rhetoric that is, um, you know, making it all the more difficult for oil companies to do business. So it's a mixed message. What's the right answer? Get government out of it. You know, just let, I mean, if people want to use fossil fuels, they can. Um, you know, it's a lot cleaner now, and more people are transitioning to EVs already. Um, so the right thing to do is just kind of let the market forces kind of evolve on this. And if you just look at the financial, you know, pen and paper, I mean, what you're we're spending for an EV is dramatically less. Now, granted, I know there's subsidies involved in there, but you know what, those are the tax dollars that I pay. And so getting some of my tax dollars back um, for driving an EV, I think is a way to sort of gamify the system and benefit yourself. So what do you think? I mean, let me know your thoughts on why you think gas prices in California or here even in San Diego are over $6 a gallon, which is outrageous. Um, Okay, let's move on to the next topic. But before we do, I just want to just kind of give a couple more comments and things going on. So gosh, over the summer, I took a bit of a break um, from the podcast. I've been so busy with family things, doing all my podcasts with Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. We do a sports podcast twice a week. And I was all fired up to get started again in September. And boy, we had, uh, we got COVID. I was in Houston two weekends ago to visit my son and my wife and daughter and I, um, you know, we all traveled out there. My daughter's boyfriend joined us, and it was a fun trip to Houston. We went and saw the Padres play the Astros at, uh, at uh, Minute Maid Field, and that was a really nice facility. And Houston was hot, but it wasn't crazy hot. We got around fine and saw some of the sights. We were only there for a weekend, looking forward to going back. But when I came home, I started to get, you know, the first little glimmers of feeling ill. And then, you know, after a few days, I tested positive for COVID. And boy, it just kicks your butt. You know, I know it's on a resurgence right now. uh, So just be careful out there, you know, be safe. Uh, But uh, for me, you know, I had some cold symptoms. But then also, like, you know, you kind of ride that wave where you're feeling good. And then sometimes you're not feeling so good and sometimes nauseous. Sometimes you hit a brick wall and you can't go any further. You just shut down for the day. I had some of that, but I think I'm out of the woods. My my beautiful wife is still suffering from it, but hopefully she's only got a few more days to go and then she'll be out in the clear. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's back, man. It, COVID season is back. Flu season's back. So get your shots, get vaccinated, do what you can to minimize any problems. Okay, let's move on down the line and let's now talk a little bit about water in San Diego County, because the price of li- the cost of living everywhere is going up. Housing's going up, gas prices, college tuition, um, insurance prices are going through the roof. Electricity prices are the highest in America here in San Diego. And and then water prices are now going to go up. And people are freaking out about this too. 20% increase is what's planned in the next few years with water. So let's kind of break some of this down. So yeah they're going to go up nearly twenty percent in the next in the next two years, and it's going to make the average single family homeowner bill about twelve dollars more per month and I read that and I went that's all i mean gosh you know granted we live on two acres, and so we have a definitely a larger water bill than the average homeowner, but sometimes our water bills you know for two months are 400 bucks, 600 bucks. I mean, sometimes even more than that. Um, gosh, if if our rate only went up 12 bucks a month, it would be no big deal. Maybe for some people that they're going to feel the pinch, um, but people are really upset about this because they kind of think of water almost as a natural, n- not just a natural uh, resource, but as a human right, <laughs> which I don't necessarily agree with, but let's talk a little bit about this. So The rate increases for water here in San Diego um, are going to go up in three parts, a 5% hike on December 1st, and then a 5.2% hike on July 1st of next year, and then an 8.75% jump in January of 2025. Um, And that's going to increase prices, yeah, it's almost 20%. I think compounded, it's a 19.8% jump. And- might be thinking, well, why are they doing this? Well, there's a lot of reasons why. And there's conspiracy theories as to why, too. But uh, a big part of it is, is that most of the water that comes to San Diego is imported, right? We are either getting water from the Colorado River, or in other cases, we might be getting some water that comes to Southern California, you know, from the Sierra Nevadas, and it goes to Southern California water and it gets wholesale sold, you know, through a couple of layers. Eventually, comes down to the San Diego water and, and down to our local water districts. Well, those prices are going up, and we're dependent on imported water. That's part of the reason. The other part of this is is that they need to upgrade a lot of these aging water pipes. That makes sense, you know. And, and you know, we've talked a lot about how infrastructure all over America has been crumbling, and you kind of wonder why. And the reason is is Well, they're not maintaining it. And even though government revenues are at all time highs, they still are not spending enough money on maintaining the infrastructure. And it's degraded. And I mean, heck, even here in my house, we have a storm drain that, um, that, corroded and broke down and thankfully the city covers that. That's part of the easement. and the city is in here, actually they fixed it. It caused a sinkhole to my next door neighbor. It was kind of crazy. Uh, but uh, you know there, there's a, a desperate need for doing a lot of these upgrades. But at the same time, pure water, who I'm showing there on the screen, pure water is this initiative in San Diego that converts wastewater into drinking water, you know, toilet to tap. It's creating water that's cleaner than what we get from the Colorado River. I mean, this is a fantastic innovation. And if we can recycle more of our water or manufacture more of our water from our desal plant in Carlsbad then we won't need to be importing 85 to 90% of the water into San Diego we can be a lot more self sufficient and that's good so they want to fund more of this pure water initiative that's a big part of the reason and then the other part of it is is that the San Diego Water Department you may have seen the news reports on this where people have not been getting billed they 'll go two, three, four, six, eight, ten months without getting a bill, and then all of a sudden a bill arrives, and it 's like two thousand dollars you know or something crazy that people are not expecting and it 's because their billing system is such a disaster and they can 't keep up with you know keeping the billing going and they 've got to fix that so they 've got all kinds of problems with water in san Diego. but when they talked about raising these prices, you you can expect it. You know, there's going to be a lot of people kind of whimpering about it and upset about it. And and um, you know, here's uh, one person that spoke to the city of San Diego, and she said, "I sometimes don't have enough to eat, to wash my clothes, to buy shoes that I need because I'm diabetic, or to send money to my mother or my children." Um, another. Person um, who's a registered nurse at the UC San Diego Health um, wrote this to the City Council. Accessing a basic amount of water is not a discretionary purchase decision, and to commodify its use is to show a reprehensible insensitivity to humanity. So you know these people they really take this seriously. Um, The city of San Diego also is planning on putting in more of those smart water meters so they can monitor the meter from a remote office, rather than having someone, you know, come to your, to your curb and lift up that concrete lid and look at the, at the odometer to check your, your water usage. They're going to make those electronic, which I think will be improving the system. But talking about bills, you know, I told you how oh, there's this delay on billing. There are 30,000 water bills in San Diego that are on hold. 30,000. I mean, these guys, they can't even get through all of this. Um, so they're trying to fix all of this and they want to raise the rate. Now, apparently, the water rate hike will raise monthly bills for a single family homeowner in San Diego from $81.07 a month to $93.55 a month as of January of 2025. Now, they were going to raise it up to about $103, but they kind of backed off of that. So, I mean, what do you think of this? This, this to me, is interesting. Now, there's, there's a lot of different thoughts and opinions on this. Um, so you might be saying, all right, the water rates go up, that sucks, right? And there's kind of a water monopoly, right? I mean, it's not like, you know, there are a choice of water vendors with water pipes coming into your house. The government utility runs the water and we kind of get stuck with that. And that kind of ties our hands and it frustrates a lot of us. Um, but, you know, I mean, you could import water, you could get water and buy water, you could drill a well. You could recycle water. There's some people that are recycling water that comes off of their rooftop when it rains and they capture that and they use that for watering their, their plants and, and and their property. Other people are converting gray water or the water that comes from, you know, they're essentially their washing machines and dishwashers, purifying that and then using that to water the land, water your grass and, and lawn. There's some things you can do, but generally speaking, we're kind of stuck. So, how do you feel about this? Now, you know, here in my hometown of Poway, there is this, you know, sort of conspiracy theory that I think has a lot of truth to it, as many conspiracies always have a little bit of truth to them, that the city of Poway has been raising water rates. You know, for a lot of these same reasons, you know, the water wholesale rates have been going up. They're putting in new infrastructure here in the city of Poway, a new uh, clear water well, you know, where they where they bring the water in and it gets purified before it goes into the pipes and down to our house, because we had that water crisis in Poway a few years ago. Um, so that's causing water rates to go up because of the investment in infrastructure and the wholesale rates are going up. But there are some people in town, like Chris Cruz, who runs a a local Poway Facebook group here, she's always complaining about the water rates, mostly because she sees it as a sleight of hand to essentially raise taxes because- the city government can't raise the sales tax without going to, you know, the voters, can't really raise the property tax. And those are the two primary sources of revenue for the city. And so since they can't generate more money through taxes or it's very difficult to do that, they can instead just raise water rates and then that money is kind of goes into a, it, it's sort of um, what's the right word it's fungible. The money can move from the water department into the city, and the city council sees over the the water district and the city council and so it's sort of an indirect way to sort of raise taxes and that's always been one of her pet peeves there's some truth to that um you know because that's you know, the, the money that they use to fund, the, you know, that f- comes from the water, funds the infrastructure, but it's paying for city government salaries, which normally you think a lot of the sales tax and income tax revenue would do that. So there's some truth to that. But um, I don't know, in, in a way, though, what's the right way to pay for some of these infrastructure improvements? I mean, do you do a bond and then have it paid, you know, for people years down the road, take on debt? We've seen the billion dollar bond at Poway Unified School District. That's no way to go. Some of these bonds are structured very poorly. But I kind of like, I mean, you know, set aside the idea that this is a shell game and it's an indirect way of setting taxes, uh, raising taxes. That very well may be true. But the concept of paying for what you use makes sense to me. And and if if our rates have to go up to pay for infrastructure improvements, to me, conceptually, that's reasonable. Um, now, if the wholesale rates are going up, yeah, that's a problem too. You can't really control that. But I like how the city of San Diego is investing in ways for us to be more self-sustainable with the desal plan in Carlsbad and the the, um, the water purification, the pure water initiative. And yeah, desal is expensive, that process. But the pure water initiative is significantly less expensive. And I generally like that. I've generally thought that the leadership in San Diego hasn't been great on a lot of issues, but on water, they're done all right. I mean, you got to figure with the desal plant, the the pure water initiative, they've expanded dams, including at San Vicente. Um, So there's a lot, I mean, parts of California have a real drought, but San Diego if we were cut off from the rest of the outside world, we'd be able to sustain ourselves a bit. And the more that we can recycle and manufacture water, the less reliant we are on imported water. And I think that could be good. Um, so, uh, but it's, it's interesting stuff here. I mean, in the end, I think we have to think of this as a sustainability thing, you know, so that we have as much access to water as we can, and we need to let the human mind innovate so that we can radically change the paradigm. So we're not always just depending on importing water from the Colorado River that is getting less and less full and those those water levels are dropping. Instead, we just need to create our own. Um, And I don't mean putting seeds in clouds. I mean converting wastewater, desalinizing ocean water, that's the way to go. Um, So the fact that there's some investment there, no one likes to pay higher rates, but at least they're doing that. And I think that's, given all the other alternatives, that's not that bad. Um, But still, people are freaking out about this. Now, granted, the cost of living in San Diego is out of control, but water really isn't the main reason. I mean, if your bill goes up 12 bucks a month or 20 bucks a month, I mean, some people are going to feel that pain, but housing, transportation, taxes, those are far greater expense on average everyday people. And to say nothing of, you know, college tuition or a lot of other things, you know, that, you may or may not have to deal with, but everyone's got to deal with energy prices. You know, gasoline, electricity, housing in San Diego is insane expensive, largely because they've restricted development. That's where the problem is. Um, those are the areas that I think are more within our control to solve. Um, trying to, and really, water. If you think about it, the price per gallon of water is really, really cheap. Um, I remember I looked into this and I was thinking, gosh, if there was a way to economically come up with ideas you know, on an individual basis to, to recycle your water, it'd be great. But a lot of times water is just so inexpensive that even if your bill goes up 10 bucks a month, it, is it worth it to invest in water recapturing systems and recycling systems on your own property when that investment is so expensive and the, and the potential savings is so minimal? It's, it's hard to do. Uh, But anyways, prices of water, San Diego going up a ton. What do you think about that? Let me know in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube. We'll get you involved in the San Diego Community Forum. Okay, Um, moving along, I want to talk about a bunch of other things. We're going to talk a little bit about... um, a San Diego entrepreneur that has hooked up with Coach Prime in Colorado on a big sunglasses deal. And this is a great story. We're going to talk a little bit about a local op-ed in my newspaper here in Poway about politics harming us. Talks about the the common good and and some of these things. I will break that down. Um, Self driving EVs. There's been some interesting development there. A government run grocery store in Chicago, people in Iowa mandating the Pledge of Allegiance in schools. I mean, the crazy stuff going on. We'll comment on all this, plus the San Diego Community Forum. Um, if you want to learn more about this podcast, the John Riley Project, go to my website, johnrileyproject.com. All of our episodes are there. You can connect with us on social media there. Um, and if you have a question or a comment, just go to johnrileyproject.com. If you like to be a guest or you would like to recommend someone as a guest on this podcast, I welcome that. Go to johnrileyproject.com to get connected. Okay. Let's go to our next story. And this, I love this story. I mean, on so many different levels. I think this is just terrific. And this is about a sunglasses entrepreneur here in Pacific Beach in San Diego. His name is um, Chase Fisher. He's 35 years old. There he is on the right-hand side of the screen. And this guy is a sunglass Entrepreneur, you know, he's invented his sunglasses. He got a loan from a friend when he was in college to get started. And he literally had been selling glasses like at street fairs, you know, up and down the boardwalk, out of the back trunk of his car. I mean, this was the struggling entrepreneur. And now he's hit the big time. Because he's hooked up with Deion Sanders, who's the new head coach at the University of Colorado at Boulder, you know, the the Buffaloes, which is the the taking over college football by storm, and and Coach Prime, which is, you know, how he likes to be referred to now, uh, Deion Sanders. Coach Prime now wears these Blenders sunglasses that Chase Fisher has developed, and his business is exploding. And this is a great story. So... Um, So the deal was, this is from Fisher. He says, I was teaching surf lessons, doing little side jobs. I started selling shades at the beach, selling shades at pool parties, selling shades. God, it's hard to say fast. Selling shades at street fairs. The whole business was built one pair, one customer, one sale at a time. Really? I'm interested in how he did that. I mean, I wonder if he, he must've been importing these from Asia. Uh, I can't imagine he was manufacturing them. I mean, because you need a process to do that. But he probably had a design and had a brand and was out there pushing it. And he says, I was about six months in and really down, not selling anything. I was about to quit. And some guy told me, Chase, the only way you're going to fail is if you stop. So just keep going. And that's a great message for entrepreneurs. is just keep going going, believe in what you're doing. And it's just so perfect that he's hooked up with Coach Prime, who preaches the same kind of a vision, the same kind of a lifestyle to believe in yourself, to keep going, to go for it. You only live once to really maximize everything you can do in life. So the way this all came about is that um, Blenders, or here Chase Fisher owns Blenders, found out that Coach Prime... Was looking for a new sunglasses deal. And so, what he did is he cold called him and they hammered out a deal with the, these shades. They're called Prime 21. And they, had, they were about to announce their partnership last week. And then that explosion happened when Colorado played Colorado State. And I remember if you saw that game on television last Saturday night, great, great entertaining game. And there was a kind of a war of words between. Coach Prime from Colorado and his opponent, Coach Jay Norvell, who was the head coach at Colorado State. And, you know, Coach Prime, when he does his press conferences, he comes out, he's Coach Prime. He's got the shades, the hat, the jewelry, the whole thing, you know, because that's that's him, man. He's you do you, man. He's believes in himself and he's authentic. That's Coach Prime. And Jay Norvell, the head coach at Colorado State, wanted nothing to do with this. He's old school. He's like, my, my mom and dad told me that when I approach adults or need to be in a respectful business situation, you take off your hat and you take off your sunglasses when you approach adults. And then it blew up and all this attention to the sunglasses happened. And then for Chase Fisher at Blenders, his sales started to blow up. Um, and uh, and so Coach Prime, it was, this is was great. He, so it this whole thing, this whole attack by Coach Jay Norvell made Prime double down, triple down. He was handing out new sunglasses to the hosts on ESPN's first take, to the Pat McAfee show, to College Game Day on ESPN. And this whole sunglasses thing was blowing up. And Blender's sales for Chase Fisher, his pri- his sales went up. One thousand percent. Think about that. So one thousand percent, and I know that's not ten times. What would that be? Would that be eleven times uh, the price? I mean, it's his business is booming. So here's a rags to riches story. A guy that was selling sunglasses, you know, at street fairs and on the beach, and now his price, his business is just taken off. And he's developed this relationship with Coach Prime at Colorado. And and it's cool because you get a, a, an understanding of how Deion Sanders thinks. And apparently these sunglasses were set up to sell for $69. That was the plan. But then the coach, Coach Prime, pushed for the prices to be made $67 rather than $69. And he wanted $67 just sort of as a hat tip to the year that he was born. And so- Cool. You know, I mean, that's Coach Prime making himself, reinforcing his brand, but then kind of showing Chase Fisher, you know, look at these little details because every detail tells a story. And that makes the story of Coach Prime all the more compelling. And it can make Chase Fisher's business all the more interesting as well. So, man, I just love this. And um, the whole Coach Prime thing, I just want to just go on record. I. I think what, you know, Hacksaw and I talk about him all the time, um, you know, mostly from a a sports perspective, you know, and what he's doing there. Because, you know, they got a nationally ranked team. They're 3-0. and They beat TCU in week one, which is the national runner up. They were in the championship game last year, TCU. And Colorado went into Fort Worth, Texas and beat them on their home turf and then beat you know, Nebraska, which is like, you know, one of the blue bloods of college football, and then beat their rival Colorado State. And everyone's going crazy about Coach Prime and the Colorado Buffaloes. And, you know, this week they're going to or- to Eugene, Oregon to play Bo Nix, and that's going to be a tough assignment. And everybody is waiting for Coach Prime to fall on his face. They're all rooting for him to fail. But, His kids believe in themselves. His kids have bought into what Coach Prime is selling. And it's that whole message of believing in yourself, of going out there and going for it and doing it with class and respect and character. I mean, Coach Prime, in one of his uh, film room sessions with his uh, team, he had the women that support his football program, you know, whether they're in You know, equipment, or if they're helping out with uh, training and and sports medicine, a lot of these other women that were essentially on the staff, he brought them up in front of the of the players in this kind of miniature amphitheater where they do film study, and said, "Man, these women are here for you. These women are here to help you be better." Because you need to respect not just these women, but respect women. On our campus at the University of Colorado, and respect women everywhere. No one deserves to be put down. We don't need misogynist comments. He was standing up for these women, and it's a it's a, a comment you rarely hear from college football coaches. And especially now, um, you know, with all the the crisis that went on in San Diego State and the whole Matariza ordeal, which that's a whole soap opera in and of itself, Matariza apparently wasn't involved in the rape incident that occurred, Um, but still a woman was raped at a college party at San Diego State. And some of the football players were involved in that. And there's this culture, you know, in some football programs where, you know, women are not treated Properly, And here's coach prime preaching that message. So, man, I just love how one guy, Dion Sanders has rolled into Boulder, Colorado and flipped a program who won one game last year, went one win and 11 losses last year, was one of the worst college football programs in America and now has them as a top 20 team now has them three and oh. And the whole nation is talking about Coach Prime. And I love every minute of it. And the fact that Chase Fisher here, who owns Blenders in Pacific Beach right here in San Diego, is part of that train, you know, of the Coach Prime movement. I think it's great. So you got a little local story there. I love it, man. So Chase, he's doing doing what Coach Prime says. Don't give up. Believe in yourself. I think it's awesome. What do you think? Let me know in your thoughts and comments on the live stream here. Um, Wow, there are so many other things we can get going on this. But I I just, before we get to our next topic about... A local op-ed here in my Poway newspaper. Just want to give a shout out to Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. Maybe you know Lee, the the legendary voice of the Chargers, the voice of the Arizona State Sun Devils, the USC Trojans, the San Diego Chargers, the Seattle Seahawks. This guy is unbelievable. I co-host a sports podcast with Lee Hacksaw Hamilton every Monday and Thursday at three o'clock. We do the live stream, um, and. If you love sports, if you are a fan of San Diego sports, you probably know Hacksaw. You know who he is because he's such a legend. But it's great to have him back, you know, kind of on the air. We're doing it. In a live stream format, we kind of—it's very similar to the way I structure my podcast. Because frankly, I'm structuring my podcast after the way he does is because it's a proven formula that works. Um, but if you want to check that out, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com for his website. He's got a lot of great sports articles, opinion pieces, one man's opinion, best fifteen minutes of sports that he's written. You can also um, go look up Lee Hacksaw Hamilton on his YouTube channel. There's over 1,000 videos there. There's over 3,000 um, subscribers you can get on board or just follow him just on all the social media platforms, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, threads. He's everywhere. So check out Lee Hacksaw Hamilton for not just local Southern California sports, but really national, international sports. We cover it all. Okay, there's my plug for Hacksaw. Okay, let's, um, let's move on. And I want to talk about Harry Levine. and Harry is a local columnist here in my hometown newspaper, the, po- the Poway Chieftain. And you know it's part of the Pomerado News Group. They also do the, the Rancho Bernardo Journal, and they have these, these collections of these little local papers in, you know here in San Diego. And this particular group, Pomerado News, is owned by the San Diego Union Tribune, which is owned by the L.A. Times, you know which is this giant hierarchy of news media. But the 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 Poway Chieftain actually has like a very nice local flavor. It's good. It's good little local newspaper, and I enjoy it. I'll I'll usually reference them for a lot of my content here on my podcast. Well, there was a really interesting op-ed that Harry Levine published, and I wanted to highlight a couple of comments on it. And it, his his title here was "Today's Politics Are Harming Us," and I think that's pretty self evident, isn't it? We look around and. Yeah, I mean there's a lot of div- divisiveness, there's a lot of rhetoric, there's a, a lot of angry people that are fired up whether you're on the left or the right or somewhere else. So many things in our society have been politicized. Sports, news, entertainment, culture, so many things have been politicized. And Harry Levine brings up this idea. He says, you know, while everyone's out there kind of rallying for their team or their tribe, right? You know because politics is tribal, like sports is tribal, people lose sight of the other guy. And I saw this and I went, oh, this is perfect because I talk about this a lot too. You know, how we have inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is really the overarching theme of this podcast. And a lot of times people think about that. Well, I demand freedom for me, but they often will try to deny freedom for others. You know, and, and that's where this, this idea of the other guy, Harry Levine brings this up because the problem is that no one seems to consider the other people, you know, um, he says, does anyone care about people on the other side? Does anyone look at policy and ask, quote, how does this, har- how does this create harm and to whom? I think, yeah, in today's political climate, so many people are are just interested in getting a win for their team and kind of screwing over the other side rather than looking for ways to find win-win outcomes. They, they, a lot of people see the world win-lose. That's one of my big complaints with Trump. He's a win-lose guy. He wants to win. He wants to call you a loser. Um, there are other people that are in, that are infatuated with lose-win relationships where they're altruists and want to fall on the sword and, and take one for the team so other one, other people can benefit. But I think the win-win is what we should be seeking here. And I think Harry Levine brings up a really good point, you know, because a lot of times people, when they get what they want, end up creating harm for other people. And sometimes that harm is very direct. In other cases, it's kind of indirect. And I want to talk about a few of these cases. Um, But he goes on to say that we face a crippling intolerance of ideas, philosophies, and needs that are not in line with our own and he's right. And that's part of what I'm trying to do in this podcast. I mean, I have my own philosophy. You know, I I talk a lot about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, about having a life where you could be free of coercion and go out there and live your life with gusto. You only live once, go out there and flourish, be all that you can be. And you could only really do that in an environment that supports freedom, but not just freedom for you, freedom for everyone. But a lot of times people are intolerant of ideas. I mean, I go driving down here, Palmarado Road and Twin Peaks, and on Sundays, you'll still see the Trump supporters out there. I haven't seen them in the last few weeks, but I don't think I've been out there when they're out there. But I'm sure they're still coming out on Sundays. And they're all for their guy, Trump. But at the same time, they're like slamming other people. You know, you see a sign that says freedom. And then right next to it, there's a sign that says build a wall, which is like freedom for me, but not for thee. Or you'll see people saying they want freedom, and then right next to it, there's a sign that's denouncing women for wanting to have the freedom to manage their own body, to you know, essentially have the rights to their own reproductive system. And you've got all these conflicts. And we see the same thing in other cases where people on the left are demanding more and more social services, but they want to raise taxes on the other guy, raise taxes on the rich, raise taxes on the upper middle class. They can afford it. They need to pay for what we want. You know, the the infrastructure thing on the water, that's why I was saying pay for what you use. We should all pay for what we use. But there are a lot of people that want stuff for free and they want to make other people pay. So this win-lose idea goes in both directions, right, left and left, right. But he asked these questions, you know, why do we have this crippling intolerance of ideas and philosophies? Again, part of this podcast is talking about these ideas, getting new thoughts and opinions. That's why we have the community forum. That's why I invite live chat during my podcast is to get other people's thoughts and opinions. That's why we interview political candidates to get different thoughts and opinions and to talk it out like rational, civil adults and have a conversation. Long form in many cases, free of all the, the punches and the jabs but really just kind of talking things through. We can learn a lot. And I, I really like this article. He says, to my, today's my way or the highway mentality rejects the aim of serving the common good. Now, this is an interesting kind of turnoff that he makes in this article, talking about the common good. Because what is the common good? I mean, what's good for me may not be good for you or good for your neighbor, you know, there. If it's good for fifty one percent, but bad for forty nine, is that a common good? And if it's bad for forty nine percent, does that make it good? You know, I, I think this idea of a common good is kind of an ab- ab- abstraction that is disconnected from reality because you can't really define what it is. It's not objective; it's subjective, and and you know we could talk about benefiting the common good you know in my way of thinking i mean if there is any form of a common good which i think is debatable um it would from my perspective would be that you just respect the rights of others that you are free to live your life the way you want to live it and at the same time you should respect other people to do the same thing as long as they're not harming anyone but the outcomes that we pursue in life, are going to all be different, and we're going to make dis- choices and good choices and bad choices, and it's really hard to come up with a, quote, common good. Usually, whenever you hear someone preaching about the common good, that means someone else is about to get screwed over, which is kind of goes back to Harvey's main theme about this idea of winners and losers and divisiveness. But he does bring up a, a lot of good cases. He says, the Speaker of the House is threatened with expulsion by his own party if he doesn't support the extreme right. And yeah, that's definitely happening. Um, yeah, Kevin McCarthy has sold his soul to the devil. Kevin McCarthy has, in a desperate attempt to hold on to power, has made deals that that he likely is not going to be able to fulfill. And he, he may get kicked out of his post. We'll see. But he's in a very precarious situation, not at all in on solid footing. Um, The California legislature spews out bill after a bill that imposed policies that are well out of the reach of localities and are insensitive to the needs and rights of the locals. Now, this is an interesting angle, too. I think they're talking about housing. And here in Poway, there's a lot more housing being built. And there's housing being built in a lot of other parts of San Diego. And part of the reason is because a lot of the uh, local control over Housing development has been eroded by Sacramento because so many NIMBYs, not in my backyard, in a lot of these communities have been able to keep development at bay, have been able to prevent development, have been able to minimize it and to keep open space open and to keep single family neighborhoods, single family neighborhoods, because they want to keep things the way they want it. And that's slowed down the development of housing. But you know what? we're building more housing. Is that a common good? I, I think here, even if some of the locals don't want it, still, is it a common good? Because housing benefits people, not just the developer making money, but it also it benefits the people that get a roof over their head, where housing is just so darn expensive and so few vacancies in, in San Diego, it's hard to find a place. So the, again, debatable. What's common good? He goes on to say the San Diego Association of Governments, SANDAG, insists on using a weighted voting model that mutes voices of the smaller communities. And that's true, too. A lot of um, some, some of the smaller cities here are really angry at SANDAG because they believe that their input is being diminished. Some would argue, well, you're a small city. You should only have small input. Debatable point. But a lot of this my way or the highway stuff coming down. Um, We're seeing this, definitely. There's no doubt about it. This This is happening all around us. He goes on to say, we are at an inflection point. Unless we are ready to accept a totalitarian leadership with widespread exclusion of the masses, and that means us, we must, with pen and ballot, exercise the power granted by the Constitution to promote candidates who would break the deadlock and commit to a platform based on justice and inclusion, a platform to support the common good and to do no harm. Okay. Again, we'll break this down. The common good, again, I think is debatable. You know, we can talk about clean air, clear water is common good. Okay. That's probably about as close to it as you get. There's a lot of other things that if eighty percent of the of the people like it and twenty percent don't, is that common good? Well, for the eighty percent, it's common good for the other twenty percent it's not. you know so whose rights should be trampled in some of these cases? So common good to me is tricky. Um, do no harm well if, if take take housing for an example. if you're preventing a property owner from building on their property, are you harming the property owner? I would argue yes. If you are, and are you harming other people that are looking for places to live? And there's less inventory. Indirectly, yes. Other people think, well, if you allow more housing to build, then there's more traffic and more strain on infrastructure. You end up harming other people. But again, I think if people are free just to live their lives peacefully, that's not necessarily harming others. You know, it's not like someone is got a gun to their head. Not like someone is being mandated to pay higher prices or is suffering material damages. If you can prove that, then that's legit. But if you're just simply inconvenienced by more traffic, is that harm being done to you just to let other people live freely? I mean, I think we have to, you know, kind of figure out a way to get along with all this. But he also goes on to say a platform based on justice and inclusion. Okay, inclusion, that's a bloated term these days as well. You know, of course, we don't want to discriminate against everyone, but sometimes they people take inclusion so far that they kind of lose sight of the fact of just providing access in general to the public, rather than favoring one group over the other group. That gets tricky. But he is right, though, that we need to elect candidates that are not so darn tribal. You know, we have candidates that are heavy right wingers or heavy left wingers that have an agenda. And they don't want to compromise with the other side. You know, you have to ask yourself, are these people really serving your best interest? And is that part of the problem that we have now is because our elected officials have become so polarized? And is there maybe a third way? Is there maybe a better way? And that's why I'm always very open to the idea of looking at candidates that are independent or third party, that new ideas, new ways to kind of shake up the model and find ways that we can all live freely without oppressing one another while respecting each other's rights. So anyways, Harry Levine, I think, brought up a really good article because, yeah, in many cases, the politics are harming us. No doubt. I mean, the, the uh, divisiveness and rhetoric in this nation is is out of control in a lot of cases. I mean, heck, we, we've had... I mean, we can go down the list of all the, all the things that have been going on in the last three to four years with government shutdowns and with, you know, January 6th and, and all the other nonsense that's gone on in California, you know, particularly with the COVID policy specifically. I mean, people getting arrested for paddleboarding in Malibu, city officials filling up skateboard parks with sand, putting two by fours over outdoor basketball hoops. Shutting down restaurants with outdoor eating was insane. And that was government policies harming us. They think they're trying to help the common good, but in the end, they end up harming people. And I think we have to look at what's the role of government here. In my opinion, government is meant to protect our rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, it's a means if someone is. You know, We have cases of murder and rape and assault, theft, robbery, fraud. That's where government needs to step in. And you can make an argument, well, since our existing model is that government generally owns most of the infrastructure, like we're water and roads, and we can debate whether they should be in that business in the first place, but they are, and therefore their effort should be there as well. But in a lot of other cases, you kind of wonder... Why is government even involved? And we haven't even begun to talk about the, um, the story in Chicago. We're talking about having the grocery stores there run by the government. We'll get into that one as well. So what are your thoughts? Let me know on the live stream, on the live chat. <laughs> Freedom for me, but not for thee. That's, yeah, you talk about divisiveness and what about the other guy? We hear, I, there's so many examples of that. Where you'll see people demanding freedom for themselves while trying to oppress freedom of other people, and not see the hypocrisy, not see the conflict, and it's nuts. Okay, moving along, and uh, we got more that we're going to get into. Hey, I just want another shout out here. Um, If you're interested, you know I talk about Poway quite a bit. I live in the city of Poway, the city in the country which is an old-fashioned motto that really doesn't apply to today's reality, but it feels good. Um, If you love the city of Poway, I created a website. It's called powayisawesome.com. If you go to powayisawesome.com, you can download for free Background wallpaper for your desktop computer, for your tablet, and for your mobile device of pictures all throughout Poway, of the old railroad at old Poway Park, and of uh, Mount Woodson, Lake Poway, a lot of other scenic areas in Poway. Got all these great photos set up there. You can just download them for free. Go to Powayisawesome.com to check it out. Okay, let's move on. And um, I want to talk a little bit here about this this self-driving trucks that now they want to require a human to be in the self-driving truck. This is insane, this whole thing. Now, I'm. if you know me, you've seen my podcast before. I'm a big supporter of electric vehicles. I I love them. I mean, I'm not a tree hugger. I'm not some environmentalist wacko, but I love the technology is really cool and the technology just keeps improving more range, more kind of gadgets and gizmos in your car. Um, you, you know, driving the car is like driving a video game in many ways, trying to maximize energy, find the charging spots where you need to charge. Um, and there's all these financial incentives to drive an EV, which I love. And I could go park in front of a uh, Target, right in that primo spot. Other places will offer me free parking or free charging, which is wonderful. To me, driving an EV is sort of a way to overcome the way the game is is rigged for expensive oil prices, high taxes. It's me to kind of recoup some of my own money. Um, And one of the the, the warnings that Andrew Yang put out in the 2020 uh, presidential race was this fear of artificial intelligence and of self-driving vehicles, particularly self-driving trucks. Um, He said these are going to be coming by the end of this decade. They're already experimenting with this. They're going to put tens of thousands of truck drivers out of business. And then we're going to see more of this AI enter into regular cars and other parts of society. And people are going to be thrown out on the street with no jobs because the robots are taking over. This is nuts the way this some of this is being portrayed. Um, it's like they're they're Luddites here, you know, which is the you know, the the old back in the early part of the 19th century, the people that were involved with creating you know, in textiles were creating all these fabrics, were doing a lot of it by hand, and then the the weaving loom came out that made it a lot more efficient, automated part of the process, and the Luddites started smashing. The equipment, because they wanted to protect their jobs, not realizing that mass manufacturing of textiles is good for society, you know, and it makes our, you know, we have more clothing, clothing is cheaper, and it frees up a lot of human resources and capital to invest in new technologies to make human civilization even better. But still there's resistance. And now this is coming from the Teamsters the the international brotherhood of teamsters this union and teamsters you usually think of as the ones that run the unions for a lot of the trucking you know my mom was a teamster when she worked for a trucking company in San Francisco back in the 60s 70s and 80s um and they've got this bill that's in front of um uh the state of California and I think Gavin Newsom is considering signing it it's it's assembly bill 316 And this photo that's on my screen shows Teamsters and supporters at a rally in Arcadia, California on September 18th, supporting Assembly Bill 316, which would require a human operator in self-driving vehicles weighing 10,001 pounds or more. So this is for semi-trucks, you know, 18-wheelers, and they're There's a lot of innovation that's going into self-driving cars, and they keep getting better and better and better. But in California, because the government is so regulatory, and here unions have such huge influence, particularly with Democratic um, governors and and, um, elected representatives, they're about helping that union so they can retain that union for their support in the election. But what does the union want? The union doesn't want AI or you know, self-driving vehicles to take away, take away their jobs, their jobs there really aren't their jobs in the first place. But they want to slow down innovation, you know, kind of um, really not looking big picture, just looking right in front of their nose and wanting to protect those jobs. But meanwhile, the trucking industry has a huge shortage of jobs, Part of the reason that we're experiencing inflation, not only because gas prices are high, but because trucking is so expensive, they're having trouble finding drivers, the drivers that are driving are making a lot more money because of the competitive nature of the business. If they could automate this, there's a potential of huge savings in the industry, which then would would affect society at all levels as products are distributed throughout the supply chain. Now, some people say, oh, these are just greedy corporations that are trying to enhance their bottom line. Well, that's true. Of course they are. They're trying to minimize their expenses. But as a result, that's going to make the whole system a lot more efficient. And you might think, wait a minute, you want a computer to control an 18-wheeler that weighs over 10,000 pounds driving down the freeway at 65 miles an hour or more? You got to be crazy. Well, we're not there yet, but we're getting closer. And I wanted to read a couple of comments here from this article. Now, Assembly Bill 316 would, you know, according to those that are for it, would prioritize safety on the road and put the preservation of an estimated 200,000 California jobs before the interest of Big Tech. Prioritize safety. Okay, let's think about this. Is are automated driverless cars perfect? No. Um, do they still have development that needs to happen? Definitely. They're, they've gotten way better. But when you when you're calling them out for safety and not looking at the other side of this, I mean, how much problems do we have with dr- uh, truck drivers that fall asleep? My father was a step. My stepfather was a truck driver, um, and he used to drive the line between San Francisco and L.A. And he had one of his good buddies fell asleep driving his semi truck on Highway Five. You know, somewhere near the um, the Har- What was it, Harris's cattle ranch? You know, there on Highway Five, he fell asleep at the road up in that neck of the woods and f- and drove off the road. And he was killed uh, from the truck driving accident. And there are countless examples like this, where trucks get into these big wrecks because the driver wasn't paying attention, because the driver was sleep deprived. But there are other cases where you look at cars in general, where people are on their phones, they're putting on makeup, they're having conversations in their car, they're trying to discipline their children while they're driving. Everyone is so distracted. There are tons of those kinds of accidents that occur in vehicles. Imagine if the vehicles were automated. Imagine if they had sensors that could detect traffic, not just crossbound traffic, but traffic coming up along the side, traffic in uh, in blind spots, traffic from pedestrians. I, in my Kona EV, I have my sensors set to maximum. You'd be shocked at how well that thing works with its uh, driverless capabilities. I can be on the freeway, take my hands off the steering wheel, and my car will stay in its lane. And as the road turns, my car will turn automatically because the sensors can see the lanes. And when I back up in a, uh, in a parking lot, it will beep at me when someone is driving by or someone is walking by. Um, it will beep at me when someone is in my, in my blind spot. It will even bleep at, beep at me when I'm only using one hand on my driver's wheel. It'll d- demand I put my second hand on it to be more attentive. And this was a car that I purchased in 2019. So this is 2017, 2018 technology. It's gotten so much better so much better. And they're testing a lot of these cars in San Francisco. And that was one of the comments from one of the people here in the article. And this person, a 36-year-old LA resident, um, who's, by the way, a UPS driver, (laughs) had this to say, I just don't think the technology is there in light of what we've seen in San Francisco. Two cab companies with autonomous cabs have been plagued with accidents that hold up traffic and block emergency vehicles. Okay, well, first of all, they're always going to bring up, you know, the emergency vehicles, right? Which, are they blocking them? Yeah, they might be. But that's like to ignore all the other accidents that are happening from human drivers that are clogging up traffic and maybe blocking emergency vehicles, which is far more prevalent than these isolated cases of an automated car, which admittedly is in the infancy of its development but they weren't, they're not even allowing a lot of this development for trucks to happen in California. These technology companies are doing it in Texas where they can test these more because their the regulation is a lot less and, you know, there's a lot more open space too. Um, so they go on to say, I think it's like autopilot on the airplane. You still need to have a person sitting there in case something comes up. Well, you know, we're going to be getting to the point here pretty soon where we won't even need a pilot in an airplane, because if the computers are controlled, if the, if the transportation vehicle, car, plane, whatever, are controlled by computers, we can make this system so efficient and be able to be far safer than a human driver or a human pilot. I mean, a lot of these cases where planes are crashing, a lot of it's because of human pilots. Making errors while they're dri- or while they're flying, and for sure with car driving, people are distracted drivers and they're getting into accidents. But the the nut part about this is that here we have a case of progress happening where we might have a more efficient model, self driving vehicles, self driving trucks, enormous upside and benefits. But you have these luddites that are opposing it, people that often refer to themselves as progressives, as leftists, as progressives that are fighting progress. It's bananas. Um, And yet this is something that Gavin Newsom apparently is considering. Um, But these trade unions, I mean, they're obviously protecting their union workers. I get that. I mean, that's why they're in business. That's why a trade union exists to protect those workers. But at what cost? And by slowing down progress, are they actually kind of preventing our society from moving into a more efficient, more modern and safer transportation environment? I asked that question. What do you think? Let me know in the live stream. Okay. um, Got a couple more comments we're going to get into before we get to the uh, San Diego Community Forum. I want to talk about this um, government grocery stores in Chicago and about Iowa passing this bill to require the Pledge of Allegiance, which I think is nuts. Um, But before we get to that, um, you know, I talked a little bit about Powayisawesome.com. I have another Poway site. It's called Powaystore.com. Um, and I got some Poway mugs and t-shirts and sweatshirts. If you like Poway, you like the city and the country, I got some gear there that you can buy. So check it out, powaystore.com. And I have another store that I've built. This one's in Shopify. It's called happiness76.com. And happiness76 you know, really celebrates our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Shirts, mugs, water bottles, all kinds of fun stuff there at happiness76.com. And I built that one in Shopify. It's a pretty cool platform. Poway Store right now is still in WooCommerce, and I'm going to begin to transition that to Shopify here soon. I'm not really marketing these stores yet. Uh, I've been kind of just dabbling with them here for a while, longer than a while, but I really want to get more aggressive in getting those going, and I'm getting closer uh, to making that happen, but it's all part of my labor of love here. Okay, let's move on, and I want to talk about this crazy topic here of Chicago is considering government-run grocery stores. And to me, this is insane. Insane. So um, here's the deal: is that in Chicago right now, especially in some of the poorer neighborhoods of Chicago, a lot of grocery chains are moving out. You know, it's not just the Walmarts and the targets of the world, but even a lot of grocers are moving out, largely because of theft and crime is on the rise. Homelessness is on the rise. There's just a lot more chaos and security issues in their stores. And it's gotten to the point where some of these stores are saying, you know, we're done here. I mean, this we're not making money here. It's more of a hassle than it's worth. And we're pulling out. And now, as a result, there are some of these neighborhoods that have these, uh, they call them food deserts, where there aren't grocery stores. And the, the mayor of, of Chicago, the city of big shoulders, um, is threatening to work on a pathway towards opening a city-owned grocery store. Well, if the private sector won't provide groceries to some of our impoverished communities, then the government's going to do it. <laughs> really? The government's going to do it? Um, government, now, this is just my take here, uh, government at all levels really don't need to be involved in the provision of basic goods and services, whether we're talking about food or airlines, utilities, communications, garbage, healthcare, taxis, even the post office. Um, Even government should probably get out of the business of outer space. I mean, we're seeing private space companies that are launching satellites and doing it dramatically more efficiently than NASA has ever been able to do. We have to start asking our question, is this the right role of government? And is this really solving the problem? By putting in government grocery stores, Are you still solving the problem of crime and homelessness and all these other things that plagued those private industries and got them to leave? it sounds like those problems would still exist, even if the grocery stores were run by the government. Um, And it it, it does invite, you know, this, I have this photo there of Boris Yeltsin, (laughs) who at the time was, was he the prime minister of Russia? This is like pre-Putin. And he was in Houston to go to the Johnson Space Center to see mission control. And he went into a grocery store. And this is like in the early 1990s. You can see the expression on his face in the grocery store. He's like, I can't believe this. Look at all of this selection, all these options, all these uh, different products that are available to Americans. I go into my government-run grocery store in the USSR or in Russia And there's nowhere near this kind of selection. There's shortages. And here, there's abundance. There's more product here than we could ever use. It's it's so abundant. But that's the kind of model that the city of Chicago is considering doing, a government-run grocery stores. And we've already seen this fail in the USSR and Russia and other socialist nations. It just doesn't work. And part of the reason it doesn't work is because... Politics and government run have different incentives than the private industry. Private industry wants to make money. Private industry wants to satisfy customers. Private industry wants win-win outcomes where the customer is served and the business makes money. They trade. You buy bananas and fruit and milk and eggs, and the and the grocery store makes money. But government enterprises do not work that way at all. Um, they want to achieve a political outcome that makes their voters feel good. Even if it costs more money, even if they lose money and they want to set prices from from central command, they want central planners to set prices thinking that they know better than the market. And when they do, they end up creating shortages or surpluses and all these distortions. It just doesn't work. But yet the progressive mayor in Chicago is considering going forward with this. And I think this is bananas. He says, all Chicagoans deserve to live near convenient, affordable, healthy grocery options. But this is Chicago, people. I mean, this is Chicago where the mob has has run Chicago politics for decades. You know, according to this article from Reason.com, more than three dozen Chicago aldermen have been indicted by federal grand juries over the past 50 years. You expect th- those kinds of people, these corrupt politicians, to run a business that's going to thrive where Walmart and Whole Foods and Aldi, among other changes, uh, other chains are packing and moving out? I don't think so. Now, Chicago has tremendously high crime, high taxes, high regulations that make it even more difficult for new entrepreneurs to come in and provide grocery solutions. I mean, the big guys are moving out. The big guys have the resources, but they're not providing incentives for the little guys because they make it so expensive to do business. Grocery operators have pointed to crime and homelessness as reasons they've needed to invest more in security, driving up costs. According to Amanda Lai, a Chicago director of food industry practice for the consulting firm McMillan Doolittle, these grocers are also dealing with hefty overhead costs in cities. Chicago boasts the second highest commercial property taxes in the country and the second highest combined state and local sales tax. Well, is that an environment to encourage more entrepreneurship? No, it's not. Um, and you think you're going to solve this with a government run grocery store? It's just bananas. So in the article, they, they cited um, Mitch Daniels, who was the former... Republican governor of Indiana, went on to be president of Purdue, and he had an interesting quote, and he calls it the Yellow Pages test. And I've even heard Richard Ryder here in San Diego, who's a big um, anti-tax advocate, um, talk about the Yellow Pages test, is that, it, and granted, who uses the Yellow Pages anymore? But if you if you bear with me, if you're old school, if you can find two or three vendors, private industries, commercial companies that are doing business in a particular category then you shouldn't have the government doing it. You should leave it to the private sector and they can compete to try to provide the highest level of service at the lowest price. But oftentimes, government wants to get involved thinking they're going to do the right thing for the quote common good, but they end up making it worse. So according to Daniels, the Yellow Pages test is... If a good or service had multiple providers listed in the business section of the telephone directory, okay, again, that's a bit of a time warp, the government shouldn't be doing it. It makes obvious sense to pare back your commitments, especially if you're already failing at the core functions of government. But it doesn't make political sense either, especially when every increase in the size, scope, and spending of government gives you more power to reward your friends with jobs, Contracts and and other levels of status. That's the cronyism that creeps in. So you know that if government runs grocery stores, they're going to be making deals, you know, that are going to benefit the politician and their reelection chances. Um, that are going to favor some businesses rather than others, some suppliers rather than others, for political reasons, not necessarily to have the most economic buy or to have the best. Quality of service or quality of product are going to be based on political motivations rather than rational, fiscally interested motivations. And then um, the Chicago Tribune wrote a, uh, an opinion piece, and they said, "If there's a silver lining to Mayor Johnson's ridiculous proposal, is that it sounds a lot more, more like vaporware than a hardcore commitment. So let's hope that's the case. But really, city owned, city owned." grocery stores. I mean, we're already talking now about city-owned utility companies. San Diego's county is getting involved in this. City governments are trying to create a competitor to San Diego Gas and Electric, and there should be competitors to San Diego Gas and Electric. The problem is, is that, is government the right agency to do that? I don't think they are. Again, I think they have different motivations And what they're going to end up doing is giving away stuff for free to to special interest groups that they like and making other people pay more, you know, just kind of the way the tax system is built. And I don't think that's the right way to go. But anyways, that's um, the Chicago city run grocery stores. Okay. Last comment before we get to the San Diego community forum. And I want to talk this, this is just a quickie, about the Pledge of Allegiance. And you maybe have heard me talk about the Pledge of Allegiance on previous podcasts, which I think is a ridiculous custom in America. And now in Iowa, they've, they've, they've passed a bill, the governor, the governor signed it, that they're going to require the Pledge of Allegiance in schools. And they're going to require that every school show the U.S. flag and the Iowa state flag every day. For grades one through twelve, now people can opt out if it violates their religious beliefs. Um, students would not be required to recite the pledge because they can't do that because that's a violation of the First Amendment. But why? Why this nationalism? I mean, this to me, you know, some people get really fired up about the Pledge of Allegiance, and you know, I get it. I guess if you're a veteran um, and, and you're patriotic. And you believe in your nation, um, you know especially conservatives tend to be a lot more aligned with the Pledge of Allegiance and this whole idea of nationalism and patriotism. But if you really break down the words to the Pledge of Allegiance, I would suggest that it's an anti-American idea. I mean, let's take for a moment here. The, the, the Pledge of Allegiance was written by a socialist who teamed up with a company that was selling American flags and their goal was to get the American flags sold into all of the public schools this is in the early part of the 20th century and then this pledge of allegiance came with it and it got a lot of the you know the the nationalist patriotic movement behind it so it has sort of a the motivation itself isn't necessarily pure on the first place but break down the words to this I pledge allegiance. Okay, right away, pledging allegiance means that you are subservient to someone higher or to some entity before you. Pledging allegiance is the opposite of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is the opposite of the American value of freedom. I pledge allegiance to the flag. Like, why would you pledge allegiance to a flag? Well, people say, well, it's because it's representative of our nation. Okay. I pledge allegiance to the flag and the United States of America. See, so they're they're asking schoolchildren to pledge allegiance, to pledge loyalty to their nation. I mean, this sounds like something, you know, from Germany in the 1930s. And to the republic for which it stands, one nation and then under God, which was slipped in in the 1950s, which makes you question like which God? <laughs> and there are people that there are people that aren't religious, and you know that's where there's some violation of religion kind of gets involved here. One nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Now parts of it I like. I mean liberty and justice for all, I like that. That's a nice ideal to aspire towards. We've made a lot of progress. We have a lot of work to do. Indivisible, well right now we're going in the other direction. People talking about national divorce. But just the whole concept of pledging allegiance to me is the wrong thing to teach children. Now, if I had my way, if you had to have some form of a nationalist message for school children, what they should do is the preamble to the Declaration of Independence because it's way better. <laughs> and let me read that one to you. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, that is the American ideal. Those are American values. And granted, when they wrote the Declaration of Independence, slavery existed. Even some of the signers had slaves. I get that. But the idea is right. The philosophy is right. And over time... Slavery has, we fought a civil war over slavery. 99% of slavery has been abolished. And the remaining 1% people are working to abolish that. Women have the right to vote. There's all kinds of progress for LGBTQ and a lot of other, you know, Black civil rights. I mean, there's been huge progress over the years. And we're still not there yet. We're still not at the finish line. We have a lot of work to do. But compare that of pledging allegiance to something as opposed to saying i have a right to my own life my own liberty and my own pursuit of happiness diametrically different different ideas that are being presented here and so i don't know i i just think the whole concept of getting every all the school children up in the middle of the morning and pledging allegiance is a part of the way schools are used to indoctrinate the youth. And I don't think that's really healthy. I mean, I I don't necessarily believe we should be forcing them to recite the the preamble to the Declaration of Independence either. But I do believe that that message is far better than the Pledge of Allegiance. But here in Iowa, they're going to require it. And there's many other parts of America, particularly conservative parts of America, that believe that. And what do you think? Should the Pledge of Allegiance be required? It hasn't always been that way. And, you know, the one nation under God, I mean, we can debate the under God part or not. But just in general, I mean, is this the right moral framework we should be teaching our kids? I'm not sure it is. I mean, if this is a nation, land of the free and home of the brave, which is in the, the Star Spangled Banner and the national anthem, Land of the free and home of the brave does not align with pledging allegiance to the state. So um, I I think that's a a really bad idea that Iowa is considering. Okay, let's keep moving here. And um, let's talk a little bit about here in our San Diego community forum and this is where we're going to get your thoughts, your comments, and if you are watching the live stream, you can get involved. Just type in your question or comment in the Facebook, on the live chat, on Facebook or YouTube, but I've got some social media comments that I want to include here, and I got about six of them, and let's talk about these. Okay, the first one here is from Brett Shepard, talking about Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and Jim Rome and the Mighty 690 crew. And, you know, this is from the interview that I did with Hacksaw a little over a year ago when he came in here. I mean, you know, Hacksaw, I listened to him on the radio all throughout the 80s, 90s, and the 2000s. Voice of the Chargers. He was the voice of the Aztecs. I know he was the voice of the USC Trojans, the Arizona State Sun Devils, Seattle Seahawks. I mean, this guy invented sports talk radio on the, on the West coast, huge innovator. And now I'm co-hosting a sports podcast with them twice a week, which is just so awesome um, and a lot of fun, and we cover a lot of great topics. If you want to check it out, it's every Monday and Thursday, 3 p.m. live stream. Just look up Lee Hacksaw Hamilton on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. We live stream there. It's on all of your audio-only podcast platforms, Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. Follow him on social media. Ton of content. Great sports comments. But anyways, Brett Shepard said... It was a magical time. I loved everything about 690. I miss them so much, but I also miss Jim Healy um, from KMPC and KLAC. Anyone remember the Butt Brothers and Randy Miller? Well, I did a whole podcast about the mighty 1090 when they shut down. And I think that was like in... Um, the spring of 2019, I think, because, you know, Mighty 690 was huge, you know, that was 77,000 blowtorch signal from Baja to the Canadian Rockies that Hacksaw talked about. And then eventually the 690 team, you know, that whole thing kind of folded because of bad management. And a lot of those guys moved to the 1090, you know, the ownership and a lot of the hosts on the radio, like Jim Rome and, and Hacksaw and um, Scott and BR and a bunch of others. They ended up going over to 1090. And I did a whole podcast about the demise of 1090, which interestingly was watched by a lot of former 1090 employees who then were the ones that hooked me up with Hacksaw, which is all part of the greatness of this podcast is that you don't know where it's going to go and who's going to watch and the new op- opportunities that develop from it. And that was one such case. But I, I share with you, Brett, I loved everything about 690 back then. I mean, this is before the internet. Um, we, if you wanted sports news, breaking sports news, you could always count on 690 and it was 24 seven sports talk. And Hacksaw was so innovative with his Hacksaw's headlines and the best 15 minutes in sports. And then Jim Rome started off as this, you know, it's almost like an intern. He just got out of college and he was answering phones and he eventually got his scrub Saturday show on the weekends. And that's where he started developing some of his shtick, some of his gloss, his glossary. And then he ended up getting that nighttime um, uh, slot, I think like from seven to midnight. Um, And then he just got bigger and bigger and then he syndicated and now he's on CBS sports and he's like a national figure. And other guys on that station have had very good careers in sports broadcasting, sports media. Some have gone on to LA, to Phoenix, and have become big-time announcers in their particular communities. That was a magical time. And- the people, you know, before the internet, this is the only way we can interact with our sports fans, um, you know, electronically. And sports talk was so awesome. And Hacksaw was a huge part of it. So if you want to go back and relive the history of sports talk radio, I invite you to go and look that up. The history of sports talk radio. That episode is on both the John Riley Project and on the Lee Hacksaw Hamilton podcast. If you Google that or look it up on YouTube, I'm sure you'll find it. If you love sports talk radio, if you're a fan of 690, it's terrific. Now, I do remember the Butt Brothers. They were kind of later on in that evolution. Randy Miller, that name sounds familiar. But um, as 690 broke down and 1090, and then I know some of the hosts moved up to LA, I wasn't able to keep track of a lot of it. But um, what a great time that was for sports fans. Okay, let's move on down the list. This is a comment from Mike Doherty talking about our podcast that Pete Neal and I did with Captain Charles McVane, you know, he was the captain of the USS Seawolf and just a spectacular submarine commander. And he was here in the John Riley Project studio. And we talked about Captain Charles McVane and the things that he did and the people that work for him. This guy is a hero. In, in, in the Navy, I mean, and Pete Neal, my good friend here in Poway, just had been speaking so much high praise of him. He says, you got to get Charlie in here to do a podcast interview. And I was honored to have him here. And the three of us got together. And Mike Doherty says, Captain McVane, Bill Sidner, man, I wish I could have been with them. I was an Amy Corman with Marines. F- fantastic. But these guys are a different breed of perfection. I'll admit, I, I'm not a big military guy. I didn't serve in the military. I'm not, you know, a big military historian. So I don't know a lot. I knew a lot of it just from hanging around Pete. He would shared with me stories of his time on the submarines. But he always spelt, spoke with the highest reverence of, of Captain Charles McVane. And we spoke for like a little over an hour. We went out to lunch. We went to Chicken Charlie's and RB, you know, with Charlie McVane. It was kind of cool. And we came back here and did the podcast episode. And I really enjoyed it. And, but I... I'm certain I didn't give him the full credit because I don't didn't really understand. I that's why I let Pete do a lot of the questions and answers. But if you if you're a fan of the Sea Wolf and submarines, I mean, what a great episode that is! So just look that one up on the John Riley Project. Okay, here's another one, and boy, I, I it's like two episodes ago I talked about the pastor at Point Loma Nazarene University who got fired. Because he said, hey, maybe we need to take a second look at this whole banning of gay marriage. Uh, maybe we need to have a conversation about this, not with, just with church leaders, but with our congregation. And he just brought that up and he got fired as the pastor at Point Loma Nazarene, which is a university and there's a church there. And, you know, this is a pretty evangelical group um, of, you know, of Christians. And, they take this sort of thing very seriously about this idea of gay marriage being a sin. And I had commented, I said, this feels inconsistent to me because, you know, granted, I was raised Catholic and I learned that Jesus Christ preached, love thy neighbor. He preached peace and harmony. He was the Prince of peace. He wanted to bring people together. Christ wasn't preaching divisive rhetoric and wasn't shaming Gays. In fact, I can't think of any instance in the Bible where Jesus Christ in the New Testament says anything about gay marriage and virtually nothing about homosexuality. Usually a lot of that is like in the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah. But Aaron, it was one of many that criticized me, saying, You don't know what you're talking about. Love thy neighbor. That doesn't apply in this case. (laughs) And Aaron said, L-M-A-O, laughing my ass off, love thy neighbor doesn't mean permitting the continuation of sin. If someone is an alcoholic or gambler, you can show love to the person without enabling the sin. Jesus said, go and sin no more. Stop trying to cherry pick the love thy neighbor without keeping the rest of the verses in context. Okay, well, show me the verse where Jesus Christ condemns homosexuality or gay marriage as a sin. Now, there have been instances where he's condemned sexual violence, um, particularly against children, but even amongst adults, but not explicitly homosexuality or even gay marriage. To, to, I mean, there were a number of other people who had a very similar comments to Aaron. But again, I go back, like my angle here, I tell you, this podcast is about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So... What's the problem with gay marriage? I mean, you may not approve of that. I mean, frankly, I disapprove of a lot of heterosexual couples getting married because I don't think they're right for each other. But that doesn't mean I think they should be banned from getting married. So people should have the liberty to get married. And frankly, if, you know, Christianity preaches love, love thy neighbor. I, I, I still find this tremendously inconsistent, how the church would ban gay marriage. It just, it doesn't compute to me. And reluctantly, some churches are coming along, but other churches are still just in tremendous opposition to this idea. Um, living in sin? How is this a sin? Where does it say that homosexuality or gay marriage is a sin? And if it does say it's a sin, is that coming from any of the New Testament, from the gospel of Jesus Christ? I don't think it is. i like to see our church evolve on this. Let's move on. Um, this is a comment about the micro units in North Park. Remember this apartment building, they're building these little 400, 600 square foot apartments. They're still gonna be expensive, but they're brand new. And it's this new idea, not having as regulated of a building requirement so they can build higher density. There's less parking, which is going to allow them to build more units and encourage more of an urban lifestyle, public transportation, cycling, walking, that sort of thing in North Park where that kind of can work. And there were some people that were really upset by this. Oh, this is greed from developers and they're just trying to make money because the prices are not cheap. But it's a brand spanking new building. Hopefully people move out of the older buildings in North Park into the new ones, and the old ones will become less expensive, which that would make sense. But Angie from New York City, she says, as a resident of New York City, this apartment looks amazing. And yeah, from that perspective, it absolutely does. I mean, I showed photos of this in the podcast episode of a studio apartment, which looked like a a bigger than normal hotel room, you know, with a a desk and bed and couch and a um, bathroom and a sink, but generally almost like one big room and a a bathroom. And then they had the one bedroom that had the sliding glass doors and a patio, which was very nice. And then the open space where the community space where there's um, an outdoor bar, fire pit, foosball tables, patio furniture, that sort of thing. Really kind of an interesting lifestyle for a single person, particularly if you're a high wage earning single person that works in biotech or technology, or maybe you're a retired couple and wants to have a nice living arrangement. This is a sweet way to go. It was pretty sweet. I, I liked it. But again, some people just are just so resistant to change. But it is funny that someone from New York, they'd see this and go, hell, not only is that a nice place to live, but that's cheaper than what I'm paying in New York. Um, so again, progress. There's so many people that are resistant to progress, whether it comes from the church or for, from truck drivers or even from so-called progressives. There's a lot of resistance. Okay, let's uh, similar topic. Let's move on. This is from uh, Dickie Douglas, and he's talking about the same uh, the same topic, which was this innovative housing solution. Um, you know, to, to provide more housing to alleviate the housing crisis. In North Park, this high-density idea. And, and Dickie Douglas, yeah, I know he's here from Poway. I've seen him on Facebook all the time. He says, very good podcast. I have absolutely detested Poway development going back to the 80s, but such is life. I do worry about the lack of parking and the fact that we have to ration our water now. Will we be forced to cut back more once construction finishes? Okay. So there's a lot of people that don't like the development in Poway. They're building townhomes. They're building a rental apartment units. They're building more multifamily dwelling units. And they're building more single family um, homes as well up in the farm in Poway. And people are very unhappy, including people like Chris Cruz and others that consider themselves progressives that are upset that there's progress being made with more housing development. People, in my opinion, just are resistant to change. No one likes change, change is uncomfortable particularly the older you get. I think that's why people often, not always, but often are more liberal when they're young and more conservative when they're old, just kind of human nature. But, you know, society keeps evolving. You can't hit the pause button and stop progress, stop housing development. People say, oh, wait, you know, we need more housing, but it needs to be affordable housing. Well, the reason housing isn't affordable in the first place is because demand is so high and supply is so low. And if you end up creating so-called affordable housing, which ultimately is subsidized by taxpayers or subsidized by the developer who's required to put in a few units of affordable housing, it ends up just getting passed on to other people to pay that price, and it doesn't solve the problem. What they need to do is just build more, more supply. Radically more supply. That's why I'm um, very supportive of a lot of this development in Poway. I don't like the backroom deals and the way the developers are contributing to the campaigns of politicians, or or contributing to the opponents of their candidates, of of their preferred candidates. I don't like that, but that's the way the game's played, and they're playing it. Because government has so much control over the regulatory system around building code, around a lot of these requirements of how housing is built. And I think that over-regulation, often fueled by NIMBYs, has limited development and is what's caused this housing crisis. But people don't like change. You drive down Poway Road. People were complaining, oh my God, a canyonization of Poway Road. We're going to be bordered on both sides. Like, you know, Pete Neal shared the video of of, uh, Luke Skywalker going down the Death Star into the canyons with walls on either side, trying to shoot a laser into the exhaust port to blow up the Death Star. People likening Poway Road to that. It's like, come on, man. It's not that bad. Okay, moving on. Um, Social vacancy tax. This was an interesting one because. This In this comment comes from Karma Training, and this is in reaction to this idea that we have all these ex- vacant homes, vacant apartments, vacant townhouses. There's all this housing that's available to us. There's just nobody living in it. These rich people are squatting on it and not using it. That's the problem. That's why we have a problem. There are 16 million vacant homes in America, but there's only a half a million homeless. We could put all the homeless into the vacant property and problem solved, right? <laughs> right? I I've heard this like from two different people that were guests on my podcast, Jessica Johnson and Christopher Olps. Yeah, there might be vacant homes like in the Rust Belt of Ohio um or in abandoned, you know, cities where, you know, time has, has has passed these cities by. But here in San Diego County, less than 1% of the properties are vacant for more than six months. Why? Because people want to live here and there's demand for housing. And people that maybe own investment property, own second or third homes, they can rent those houses out and make more money. So the incentive in San Diego is that the housing is occupied. Housing that's unoccupied for six or more months are rare cases. And usually that's when there's like renovations being made, redevelopment. You know, those are sort of exceptions to the rule. Um, But still people get really bent out of shape. And In this case, Karma Training says they need to use a vacancy tax to build social housing win-win. We're happy to give corporations billions of dollars of bailouts. Now let some of that money trickle down in a real way. Oh my God. Okay. First of all, what is social housing? Housing isn't social. Housing is meant for the people that live in that house. Housing is family-centric or individual-centric. It's not social. We don't live in the same housing development the same house. So many things in society, people want to make them social issues, social justice. Justice isn't social. Justice is individualized. Justice is about people getting what they deserve. So I I just like this whole idea of expanding everything and making it a social issue. I don't buy in on that. Now, I will say that we do have a housing crisis. You want to say that's a social problem? Okay. But- the vac- We don't really have a serious vacancy problem. Now, in Vancouver, they did. And in Vancouver, you know, a lot of the, the wealth from Hong Kong um, was moving to British Columbia. Either the people hadn't moved there or people that had generated a lot of wealth in Hong Kong saw the writing on the wall that the Xi regime was going to come in and kind of crush Hong Kong, which they did a few years ago. Um, by the way, when Trump was president and didn't say a peep about it, um, a lot of... Money and investment went to Vancouver and other parts of British Columbia, and there was a lot of housing that was purchased that is vacant. And a lot of the the locals in Vancouver got very upset by that because they're experiencing their own housing crisis, and they saw high-rise apartments with no lights on, and they said those must be vacant. And they implemented a vacancy tax that basically penalized you if you weren't using the property but it didn't really solve the problem. I mean maybe it got it might have incentivized some people to do that, but you know, most of the time those are rich people and they can afford to pay the tax if they really want to keep it unoccupied. But here in this case, a vacancy tax to build social housing is win-win? Well, no, it's not. It, it's not a win for the person that has to pay the higher tax. I mean, they may have a reason they need to keep it unoccupied cuz maybe they're renovating it maybe they're rebuilding it you know some people they'll blow a house up and rebuild it from scratch some people will like retain there was one house here in our neighborhood they remodeled the whole thing but they kept one wall <laughs> they didn't blow up one wall so they could classify it as a redevelopment rather than as a rebuild and yeah that takes a long time but then there are other cases where people you know if they have property and they just don't want to rent it out for whatever reason it's their choice. And they're going to bear the expense of utilities to keep that connected to the grid. They're going to bear the expense of homeowners association fees and their normal property tax already. So the solution here isn't to try to solve the vacant property problem, because in San Diego, it's not a problem. In other parts of the country, yeah, there's vacant property, but a lot of those homes are you know, unlivable or demolished or they're, they're for sale or for rent. And it's just temporary where they might be vacant. I mean, heck, the house that we live in now, we bought in 07, this house was vacant for at least six months before we bought it. And it might've been vacant for about a year. And that was during, you know, when housing was kind of going crazy. And I know that they were doing a lot of kind of repairing of parts of this house during that time to prepare it to be sold. Um, but there was no reason to tax them for keeping it vacant, especially if they were working on the property. So I don't know. I, I don't really buy into that. Um, yeah, giving corporations billions of dollars of bailouts is wrong. You and I agree on that, Karma training. Um, but the right way to solve this problem is just to build more housing. That's it. Just more supply. That's what we need. Okay. Last comment here on the San Diego Community Forum, and boy, we've been going an hour and forty-eight minutes in this podcast. So I've like two weeks, two and a half weeks worth of pent up material here. So I'll be breaking this all down into individual chunks on social media. So if you don't want to watch the whole podcast, you can just watch it in pieces. And this last topic here, and this was an interesting story I did. This was about the California ban on flavored tobacco products and flavor of va- vaping products. And remember, this was passed by voters a, f- a few years ago because we wanted to keep tobacco away from children and the flavored tobacco was supposedly you know attracting children to use tobacco well the whole thing backfired because the usage of of these products barely went down at all people were just buying it online they were buying it out of state they were importing it from mexico or wherever They were finding ways to access the product. And then at the same time, the heavy tax that was placed on these products was not being collected. And they had a deficit that was being, you know, that they were previously collecting to fund all these healthcare programs and these other altruistic ideas. They had less money for that. So the whole thing was a complete backfire. And almost every comment I got was saying, yeah, of course, prohibition doesn't work. This was stupid. This was idiotic, et cetera. But I picked one of them. I want to have one comment on here. And this is from Mission 3479. And uh, Mission says, you don't even need the black market you know, to, to get these products. The ban doesn't cover buying through the internet. Many stores in California still sell banned vapes. <laughs> Perhaps cities have more pressing issues on hand than to waste police and other city resources busting shops over flavors. Yeah, it's kind of like we talked about in Chicago. Grocery stores are going out of business. They're leaving some of the impoverished communities because they make business so difficult with their regulations on what they can and cannot sell, their high tax rates, but also not addressing crime or homelessness, which then creates more chaos, more security issues around these grocery stores. Well, here in California, we don't want to have the same problem of grocery stores moving out. So they should make it easier to set up grocery stores. And in this case, they shouldn't be policing what flavors are being sold. That's utterly ridiculous. I mean, already we're seeing Walgreens and a lot of other drugstores move out, especially in the city of San Francisco because the crime is so high because people are literally walking into stores, stealing goods, and there's no consequence. I mean, you can't live in a society where we respect life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, when people's rights are being violated left and right with theft. When people get robbed, that is the opposite of liberty. That is the opposite of pursuit of happiness. Government needs to be enforcing that, you know, preventing people from these— Smash and grab, or whatever you want to call it, where people are stealing goods from school uh, stores. They shouldn't be policing what is actually sold in the store, like in this case, flavors. I mean, that's just so utterly idiotic that they would be doing that. And of course, it backfired. Of course, it backfired. People still found a way to get the product because you know when there's demand, people are going to get it. That's why this whole just in general war on drugs is just nonsense. It's failing. They they want to build more walls at the border to keep fentanyl from coming in. Even some of the presidential candidates like um, DeSantis want to shoot to kill illegal aliens if they're known to have fentanyl on them. Well, the whole reason that fentanyl is being brought into America is because all the other drugs are illegal in the first place. If people had easier access to, to less addictive, less harmful drugs, people wouldn't be taking the the crazy harmful ones that kill you. And at the same time, when you have it as an underground product, that's where all the violence is associated with that to keep underground distribution channels open and to protect turf. That's where you see a lot of the violence is around the fact that it's illegal. We learned that with alcohol prohibition in the 20s, it didn't work. In fact, Murder rates went up when alcohol was made illegal. If you start making more drugs illegal, more tobacco products illegal, more vaping products illegal, you're going to have the same problem. And oh, by the way, vaping products help people get off of tobacco. If you've got a nicotine addiction and you want to get it from a vaping product, that is way better for you or way less harmful for you than using a tobacco product. Like I had one of my cousins who was who smoked like a chimney, um, she transitioned away from cigarettes to vaping. And for her, it was a net positive. And she was able to live a longer life as a result of it. Now, she eventually was doomed by cancer. But she was able to live a longer life because she got off of the tobacco products and because the, the, the nicotine addiction is so strong, she still was able to get her fix from the vaping. And the vaping is, I mean, even for secondhand smokers, it is nowhere near as harmful as tobacco. And if people are outdoors, it's virtually no impact at all. So why in the heck are they making these things illegal in the first place? It doesn't make any sense. So the fact that the ban failed in California makes total sense. And that's where the bulk of all the social media comments were from. Were from people that said, yeah, it's failing. Sure enough. What do they expect? Well, that's Gavin Newsom for you and a lot of the leadership here in the state of California. Okay. We've gone a long time. Uh, This is almost a two-hour podcast. I'll be breaking this up into chunks over the course of the weekend but uh, th- if you've been watching, if you've been listening, thanks for checking out The John Riley Project. This is episode number 326 of the podcast. Um, my goal is to get back on a weekly rhythm. I was all ready to do that before I got COVID and fell off the wagon, and, and now I'm healthy again. And so I'm hoping to get back on that Wednesday time frame. We're doing it Friday because I wasn't able to go on Wednesday. Did it here on Friday, but we're going to get back on track of these. But you can always comment on the social media commentary on YouTube, a lot of places for you to get involved. If you want to learn more about what we're doing, go to my website, johnreillyproject.com, or just go to my uh, I have another landing page connectwithjohnny.com. If you go to connectwithjohnny, you'll, you'll see all of my social media platforms. So you can subscribe to the podcast. You can like, follow, share, and subscribe on all the social media. That's a way we can engage and continue the conversation, um, you know, as when the podcast is not live. The live stream here for a very small audience, but boy, we get a lot of repurposing of this content that makes it all the much better. And if you want to check out my podcast that I do with Lee Hacksaw Hamilton every Monday and Thursday at three o'clock, we live stream Lee Hacksaw Hamilton for all the sports updates that you could ever imagine. Great show. If you love sports, check that out. LeeHacksawHamilton.com. This is John Riley. Wishing you a great weekend of life, liberty, and pursuit of your happiness. Have a great day, friends, and we will talk to you next week. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor. Subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog, or get more information, please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.